0: The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production.
1: What's up guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles and listening to the Two Man Power Trip.
0: Oh my God, this is Joey Styles and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast.
1: This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro
0: Wrestling,
1: and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This
0: is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey everybody out there, this is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well guys, it's
1: great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. See, so you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind a show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, and, uh. hey man what's up guys this
2: is Homicide.
1: oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it
2: hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling Israel last time with a first round win, and
0: now here on Bammer in London. Another beautiful slicing elbow, he is filleting the forehead of John Phillips. John Phillips' face is red, the blood is going into both eyes. Frank Trigg is not happy about being stopped there, Mike. He looked at the referee to say what's going on, but they have to look at those cuts. They're
1: wide, there's more than one, and they are deep. Phillips is saying no way he wants to be stopped, but look at that face the ringside position will make the final decision it looks to be three cuts here one on the hairline one to the side of the eyebrow and one between the
0: eyes he's made the decision look at phillips face he's made that decision so tko will be to frank trigg he brutalized malcolm it's the only word for it frank trigg brutalized john phillips This is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, and you are listening to the Flagship Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling Podcast. Only on the TNPT Empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week I'm joined here by my tag team partner, the Interview Extraordinaire, the one and only JP John Paz. And John, today on the show we are stepping into the octagon, a little crossover appeal. As we are joined by a UFC Hall of Famer, the one and only Frank Trigg, joining us today in an interview. I know you were very excited to get done. Uh, this is where I just really I can't give you that much of an insight. I can't give you that much of a breakdown because I'm not that familiar with the uh, the 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 record, the skills, the history of a Frank Trigg. I know the name. I've seen him before. But I'm going to be leaning on you heavily for this one, partner. Tell us what we have to look forward to today with uh, Frank Trigg and you guys uh, stepping into the Octagon one-on-one.
1: Oh, yeah. A little bit of
0: Twinkle Toes
1: on the show today, which is awesome to get him on. An absolute MMA legend. You mentioned UFC Hall of Famer. He has literally fought in every major promotion there ever was. Not only has he fought everywhere, but he's been an announcer pretty much in all the big promotions and even a referee now in all the big promotions. You'll see him uh, sporadically in all the you know, UFC, Bellator, you'll see him sporadically all over refereeing nowadays, which is so interesting. A fighter going into that kind of kind of realm and going into a completely different thing from fighting to refereeing. I mean, it's completely different, but he is so smart, so skilled at everything he does. so was such a great announcer and then, of course, such a great fighter as well. I think so many people will remember him in the UFC for his Two epic battles against Matt Hughes. Of course, he loses both by runic Choke, but man, it's he ha, you know, it's almost like, oh, he had him, he had him, he's gonna win, and it just got taken away from him. Two legendary fights, Hughes, obviously one of the all-time greats. Not really, you know, to say like, oh, I lost that guy. It's not really one of those things where it really looks bad or it's a negative on the resume. It's one of those things It's like, wow, great fights, great wars, great battles. It took the loss almost. Had to, win, you know, had to win, had the victory. And, of course, when you talk about UFC 52 against Matthews, it's in the fight wing, UFC Hall of Fame. It's one of those fights that everybody talks about. And we kind of jokingly talk about in the interview how, you know, this is awesome, UFC Hall of Fame. You know, they're, they're showing this fight and doing all doing all this other stuff. Well, he lost the fight. So when they're replaying the fight, they're showing the fight, it's almost like, yeah, yeah, it was an awesome fight. It was an epic fight. But, you know, it stings a little bit that he took the loss in it and they keep talking about it, keep showing it, keep hyping it up. It's one of those things like, oh, it hurts the pride just a little bit that you know he took the loss there. But awesome that he's in the Hall of Fame way. Awesome. It's one of the greatest fights of all time. And if anybody hasn't seen it, watch UFC 52, Matt Hughes against Twinkle Toes, Frank Trigg. One of the great fights of all time. And even while you're at it, check out UFC 45, another great fight between Frank and Matt
0: Hughes. So, how does a fighter like carry a loss like that? Do they do they really like take it with them? You know, their entire career? Do they kind of build that? Do they use it as motivation? Like, what's a, what gets into a fighter's? Uh, you know, like uh, I don't know, like what, what, how do we get into their head after a loss like that? Do they bounce back quick, or is it something that takes a while?
1: Uh, it's really honestly, is dependent on the fighter. It's almost like a, a closer in baseball. Some of them have no emotion some of them carry it with them forever and then they never are quite good again as far as him losing fights like that so he loses to hughes the first time then he goes on and just absolutely dominates his next two fights to guess matt hughes again so you know he goes to the rematch and basically the same exact result happens river naked choke and a loss obviously lasts a little bit longer in the second fight than in the first fight but you know he almost had it once. So it's one of those things where like, man, I almost won. I almost beat that guy. Almost avenged that loss. But then on top of that, almost became the UFC welterweight champion. And it oh so close, but so far away. So I feel like he carried well. I mean, he's one of those guys. He's super smart. He's not gonna really let it kind of kill him. Although you could tell it hurts the pride a little bit. Maybe hurts the ego a little bit. But it's not really gonna you know kill him necessarily. Where some other guys, you'll see him lost and have a loss and then kinda of never really come back and, and never really recover from it and really struggle. But yeah, he gets back in the octagon again and he fights George Saint Pierre, who at this point was basically the young lion coming up and he loses to Saint Pierre kind of same basically length of the fight it was late in the first round. Again, rear naked chokes one of those things like, Man, two tough losses in a row. But against two of the greatest of all time or two of the greatest of all times, between GSP and Hughes. I mean, just really, when you think about it, not really saying like, oh, wow, what a big loss. Like, No, you're kind of losing the two of the best. So if you're going to lose to anybody and have that on your resume and have that on your record, might it be, you know, those guys. And then kind of throughout the rest of his career, he really never, you know, well, for a few years anyway, doesn't return to UFC for probably, I think it was about four or five years. And then he comes back again but when he stepped away from the UFC, obviously he was great in pride. He was fighting for Sengoku. He fought for Strikeforce. So he was still kind of doing his thing, uh, making a big name for himself and main eventing all over the world.
0: So let's talk about the wrestling tie-in because he stopped by TNA uh, around 2008, mm-hmm. was tied to Kurt Angle. There was uh, you know, kind of like an analyst thing. There was an on-air character. Um, how much of that do we get to hear about in this interview? And obviously you know, Kurt Angle – um for a while. I mean they were and I can't remember exactly the what he ended up doing, but I know he was linked to going to MMA for a long time. But how did that kind of uh work out for you know the the TNA stop uh on the journey here at Frank Trig?
1: Oh of course. I mean this is the two man power trip of wrestling, so of course we're gonna talk a little wrestling and we do talk about his stop in TNA, meeting Dixie Carter, getting into the wrestling business, but not only just getting in the wrestling business, it is an interesting transition. When people really think about it, I mean, you're fighting M A and then you're fighting pro wrestling. It's completely different, but it is kind of the stepbrother. It is kind of the the grandson or whoever you want to word it i mean wrestling mma mma whether people admit it or not kind of adopted from pro wrestling and and a lot of the things that you see in mma are very pro wrestling like in pro wrestling-esque so i mean you, you can't deny that but when you're an actual fighter for as long as he was and you're transitioning over to pro wrestling there is a transition and there is a tough time to go through and we do talk about that and was it a hard transition and I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that the training for pro wrestling sometimes to some of these fighters is actually harder than training for MMA. They're kind of used to it. They're used to doing the MMA, but then they have to completely change what they're doing completely two do different things and train differently and exercise differently. That it's not always an easy adjustment, but he made it very smooth when obviously he didn't wrestle much, but at no surrender. He did wrestle AJ Styles. If you remember, I mean, it, which was a pretty interesting experiment at the time, and AJ stepping out of his comfort zone, feuding with Kurt Angle around this point, but AJ kind of stepping out of his comfort zone and wrestling an MMA guy, Frank stepping out of his comfort zone, entering in the world of pro wrestling and and doing his thing against AJ. But it's interesting, they never really followed up on it and never had had a rematch or anything like that. I definitely thought that they probably should have and could have because he showed a lot of skill, showed that he really could do this, and it was just interesting, they kind of really... You know, never really did anything with it or brought him back. And he, even as far as pro wrestling, I even thought he was a great announcer. If you remember, he did some announcing TNA yeah. as well. So I feel like they they kind of could have had him do that and added some credibility and some validity to the announcing if they wanted to at that point. And they kind of dropped the ball a little bit on that one. But he's one of those guys. It's like, man, this is a, an MMA legend here. You kind of and should have done a lot more with him than what you did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was a uh, that was an interesting time in TNA for sure, and uh, they did a lot of things to step outside the box and try to be different. And that was definitely one of them. And you got to tip your cap to them in that regard because they uh, they definitely did uh, some interesting, innovative stuff. That uh, looking back gave some guys some pretty cool little stops in their journeys, and obviously that was mm-hmm. a, that was a really cool one for uh, for Frank Trigg. But I'm not even going to pretend to be an expert at all. So before we wrap it up and get over to the interview, give us a, a key to the game. Give us something to look forward to. Give us a point. We might uh, have to listen for, but give us uh, give give us the, uh, the diamond notes here for this Frank Trigg interview.
1: So, so much good stuff on here. Not only, You know, you're going to talk about his career in MMA and him being a fighter, but go into a little bit of acting career, a little bit of stunt work, talk a little bit of announcing, a little bit of refereeing for the true blue MMA fans. Of course, we'll talk about pride, no doubt about it, the greatest fight promotion of all time, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, but they were. And we talked about that in the interview. We go a little Shudo. Of course, we'll talk about Strike Force. Maybe get into a little bit of, you know, Sengoku. or we'll talk a little bit about Japan a little bit. But of course, focus in on UFC and being a Hall of Famer. What he thinks about Dana White. What he thinks about what's going on in current day UFC. Talk all about his induction. We'll talk about Matt Hughes. We'll talk about welterweight fights. We'll talk about Pat Miletich, GSP, Jason Miller, Dennis Holman. all the good ones. And of course, we will like we just mentioned, talk about his time in TNA wrestling, talk a little Kurt Angle, Dixie Carter, AJ Styles. But the most interesting thing I think that we get into is when he starts talking about pro wrestling and talks about training and, and things like that, we get into the fact of who kind of would be good as far as MMA. We're not really talking about his world, which is MMA transitioning to pro wrestling. We were kind of talking about the pro wrestlers that transition at MMA and who would be good at it and kind of, who wouldn't? And we're talking about different things like that, and, and kind of who crossed and who did both, and, and going back and forth. And it's interesting. He talks about a guy like Samoa Joe, and people always say like, "Oh, he's not really that tough," and you know, it's just his gimmick, this and that. Well, we talk about it, he's pretty damn tough, and Trey admits it, he says great athlete, is impressive, does actual MMA training with actual MMA fighters, so he's legit and has some credibility as far as that, and can actually get into a scrap and get into a fight. And really do well, and I think a name that people may be surprised, maybe they won't be, is Daniel Bryan, aka Bryan Danielson. He was saying he would be great in MMA, and he's, he was saying that he does a lot of training. And I think if people don't realize this, maybe they should do a little bit more studying. But Daniel Bryan did a lot of training with Rainy Couture and, and a lot of training for MMA and uh, uh, excuse me Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he really kind of can get on the mat with these guys. And he said that Daniel Bryan would be a great MMA guy if he wanted to be, and if he wanted to step in that world and how he was legit tough. So I think people might be a little bit surprised, like, oh, wow, he seems like maybe a smaller guy. Well, Trigg even says he's one of those guys that's heavier than you think they are, and that's really kind of testament to when you're rolling with the guy, and you're like, wow, this guy's stronger and heavier than you know than he looks. So that just shows you he's got some skill. He knows how to have body placement definitely is stronger than you think. So I just thought that was kind of a cool thing to look for, especially for uh, our pro wrestling fans out there. When he starts talking about Samoa Joe and especially Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, I think that's really cool because he said even he's done some training with Bryan Danielson. He showed him like, wow, this guy, uh, he could be pretty damn good if he wanted to be, if he wanted to do some MMA.
0: Nice. That's very cool. Yeah. Great tie in, of course. And look, if you hear this interview and it spikes your interest and obviously uh, we did our job. Absolutely. So, I uh, want to thank Frank Trick for coming on and uh, looking forward to uh, taking a listen here in just a minute to this interview. And of course, like I said, you're listening to the TMPT flagship interview podcast that you can find here on the TMPT Empire and everything going on in our world is over on TMPTEmpire.com. But you'll get the details in just a couple of moments on that. But all of our podcasts are over there. Francine, jj Dillon, and the franchise shane douglas uh with the triple threat podcast all the links are there but specifically with the franchise and the triple threat podcast if you join vince russo's brand this month you get the first month for free there is no long-term commitment so if you want to just check us out if you haven't heard us in a long time and you want to sample it get on over to russo's sign up for the month of december try us out if you like it stay with it and if you don't no long-term commitment so everybody uh, kind of gets uh, gets a little bit of a win there so we'd love to have you join us if you can and that's over on dot empire.com so that's enough out of me let's wrap it up here nice let's hit you with some two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to john here and frank trip
1: Now, for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip, and at Razzlin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean White, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Orn Anderson, Glenn Kane, Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit prowrestlingkeys.com Yes, that is prowrestlingtv.com. Visit our store, visit JJ Dillon's Store, Frank Store, and of course the Franchise Shane Douglas Store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher, and of course. Check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And now, without any further ado, a former MMA fighter, announcer, and now current referee. You may know him from the UFC Strike Force Pride, or from being a UFC Hall of Famer. He is Twinkle Toes, Frank Riggs. Please enjoy. I'm not afraid of in the fight wing he's a former ufc a course and pride fighter he's also an announcer a referee an actor a stuntman he does it all he is twinkle toes frank trig welcome to the two man power trip thanks for having me appreciate it paul now awesome that you're kind of uh kind of like coming off the movie set so to speak and you know you're busy out there what are you you know what are you doing kind of nowadays are you acting stunt work like what are you kind of up to so let's
2: see. Last week was a, was a co-starring role on a show called Snow Snowfall. It's an '80s um, cop drama about the crack epidemic in Los Angeles. And then this week is uh, stunt jobs on Animal Kingdom and on Criminal Minds. And then uh, I'm forgetting one other thing. I did one other thing this week too. It'll it'll come to me here in a minute. But yeah, I've been, I've been on three different shows this week. And it kind of goes in waves. It's weird because like sometimes it'll be like months maybe before I hear anything. I don't have a job. Like we haven't, we haven't worked. Right. Cause you're always trying to find the mm-hmm. next gig. trying to get the next, trying to get the next acting job, trying to get an extent job. And all of a sudden I'll have like four or five jobs back to back to back. Cause it's very, it's very crazy. It's just super nuts. Oh, so I was on, sorry, I was on seal team. Um, uh, the, oh, wow. A uh, couple of days before. All, so, yeah, it's been actually a pretty good little run for me in the last couple uh, of weeks, you know, and then finish up this week with uh, the Animal Kingdom. So it's
1: been nice. It's pretty great when, you know, an MMA legend such as yourself is kind of out there in the acting world and you get to show your chops and not just uh, all MMA fighters or, you know, these, these brutal, vicious guys that, 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 you know, have no personality. It's pretty great that you kind of get out there and show the other side of the MMA fighters.
2: Yeah, it's actually pretty good. I I didn't think I was gonna uh, find another passion like I did for fighting. Um, I thought I was gonna be kind of kind of left out. Like what happens to most most athletes? You spend your whole life from time you're very very young until you're el- you know eligible to still play. You know you took a look at an NFL player. He's you know by the time they're they're in their early 30s they're done. Like the career is over, and then they don't have another passion for the rest of their lives. It's very rare you find a guy that's got a real passion uh, for something else. But I happened to find it um, in acting and stunt work, and, and of course with refereeing where. Um, I'm just so, it, 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 you know, consumes everything I do all day long. If I'm not working on my stunt j- game, if I'm not working on my acting game, I'm working on my refereeing game. That's just what I do pretty much all day. And it's, it's kind of a nice to find that I do have some other passions out there. And I'm going kind of consume me and take up my
1: time and, and give me focus and love. Is it kind of weird to return to the UFC as a referee? You know, all these years later, is that a huge kind of mental shift for you? Like, oh, wow, you know, fighter you're used to this or certain thing, and now you're a referee.
2: No, it wasn't. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Um,
1: by the time I got
2: to the UFC, I mean, I mean, it's still the UFC. Let's not, you know, I don't want to make it sound too, too cold. But from a refereeing standpoint, i had been roughing already for three years before that even happened. Like, I'd already been doing, you know, I, I had several hundred matches refed at that point um, before I got in there, so to me it was just another, it was just another night, you know, and, and it was, you have to remember that, that I worked for, as a referee, to work for the commission, technically we work for the promotion this is true, but right. the commission is the one that hires us, so at that point you know, for that one I was running for Andy Foster and, and Mike Raley of the, of the uh, California State Athletic Commission, and they're the ones that gave me the assignment, and this happened to be December 9th uh, which was the Cub Swanson Brian Ortega fight, um, that was the card that was my first time working as a referee for the UFC. But I had, it was just a little sunset event to me. I just had to drive to Fresno. I had to go in. I had to you know, get in my hotel room. I had to check in. Um, my wife and I checked in the hotel room. I went down, put, put my all-black suit on, my black pants, black shirt, black socks, black shoes, uh, grabbed my black gloves, went downstairs, did my pre-fight interviews. And it's, it's the same pattern, the same rhythm I have every time that I ref. It's the same one if, if it's if it's Kabate's America, if it's Bellator, if it's UFC. If it's, if it's CXF, if it's, you know, Joe Stevenson's group, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing for me. So when I got to UFC, it really kind of wasn't that big of a deal, right, until you walk inside the cage. Then all of a sudden you realize, oh, hey, that's right. I used to fight on this canvas. This, this canvas used to be, oh, that's Bruce Buffer over there. Oh, yeah, hey, Bruce. Oh, there's Dana sitting over there in the corner. Oh, yeah, this is a little bit different. But it wasn't as nerve-wracking as most people want to make it out to be, and it wasn't that much different for me because I'd already been. I'd already been – coached and trained and worked on the craft to be a referee and not be a fighter anymore. And so for me, by the time I got there, it was already, I'd already been accustomed to it. Not saying that, that there weren't, you know, I still get butterflies every time I walk in for the first fight of the night. I still get anxious when I walk in there for the first, for the first time I'm reffing for the night. I still, you know, double check my words and have to really rehearse and look, think about when my pre-fight, Um, A rules thing is going to be when I go out there I still rehearse it in my head before I walk out And do it for the first time To the first guy I'm going to talk to that night Because there's a lot of things that go on a A lot of mechanics that have to happen A lot of things that need to be said That have to be said correctly A lot of things that have to be done correctly So that the fighters are safe And that everybody understands that we're all on the same page
1: does it make it easier for the fact that you were a fighter, obviously very, very high level too, but does it make it easier to referee being that you were a fighter or do you think that that's not that, that important? Yes and no. Um, I, I will say um,
2: I, I have advanced in my refereeing career very quickly, a lot faster than anybody else. Uh, one, because of my schedule. Um, I don't have a regular nine-to-five job like most people do. I don't, I don't have to report to an office every day. I wait until the next gig that I'm hired on for Stern or for Acting, and then I go do that gig on set or at location, wherever I'm supposed to be. And that, that's kind of what I do. So my weekends, for the most part, are pretty much on my own, which allowed me to be able to ref. So I was able to ref quite a bit. I had, I had over a 100 a amateur bouts ref in the first 10 months that I was refing I, Just every weekend, my wife and I would drive all over – um, uh, Southern California, and all over Nevada, roughing to different roughing assignments. And I just work it and work it, and work it this entire time. So I have a very, had a lot of repetition with a lot of people. That takes two years. I did it in ten months. I did it in just just under half the time that would take somebody else the exact same amount. So I have a lot of time working at this kind of at this kind of thing. So <clears throat> with that being said, I also am held to a higher standard because I've been in there and I've been in championship fights in the highest organization, the UFC. I've been in two title fights. I should know better when I'm in there as a referee. That's the assumption when I walk in there. Trent should know better because he's been in here. He's done this before. He understands how these things work. He gets what's happening in a fight. He understands the rhythm and the pattern. He understands the clack and the bell and the referee and the, the ring announcer making his announcements. He understands all these things the in, so I'm held to a higher standard. So for me, it was a lot more nerve-wracking. Um, uh, John McCarthy and, and Mike Beltran and Jason Herzog and Mike Bell were all on me very hard at the very beginning. I, I, was, very, I was kept, I was, I was checked every single time that I ref. Every single time that I ref, there was somebody checking me, checking my work, checking what I was doing. W- when you walk out of a cage and you pick up your phone, after like, well, I did a pretty good job refing, and John McCarthy's at home watching you on TV to give you, some re- to give you some notes, like, okay, all right, th- these are some things that are very important. I got I to change this. I got to fix this. I, have to be, I need to be in a better position. I need to be in a better spot. I need to, I need to put myself... Uh, uh, out of camera's way so the people at home can watch. I'm staying in the, in the middle too much. I need to be a little bit further away during these situations, a little bit further closer during these situations. Like These are things I all had to develop from the very beginning, and I had that opportunity because of the group of people are always watching out for me. So now when I'm doing these fights and doing these things, I'm at a point where five years into refereeing, I am able to communicate with Beltran, Herzog Bell. I'm able to uh, communicate with Herb Dean, hey, uh, this, is, this is what I think happened, this is what I think went on, we are able, able to talk back and forth at an equals level, as opposed to me being the low guy in the totem pole, which I still am. Make no, make no mistake. When it comes to these reffing assignments, I am the guy on the bottom of the totem pole. I have the least amount of experience compared to everybody else just because of my time in, my time actually in, in reffing. It keeps me lower, and that's just how it is. But because of this, I'm also able to talk to them as equals, not as, not as the guy, not as a new guy. I'm not the new guy. We're able to talk to them and we're able to exchange ideas, exchange different differences of opinion on different things to make sure that all sort of us are on the same page. Now I can only speak to the state of California because that's the one I work the most in. And right now I'm only licensed to referee in California and in Hawaii. And so California does a very good job of making sure all the judges and all the refs all react and see things the same way. And it's very important for Andy Foster to make people understand that, that, that when you're working for the state of California that you have to be above everybody else. You have to work harder than everybody else, he holds you to a higher standard. And because of that, I bring myself to a higher standard as a result. Yes, it's easier because I've been in there, but no, it's not, because I know if I make a minor mistake, it's going to be looked at
1: and, and scrutinized even more so. And, you know, you kind of mentioned being in UFC title fights, of course, so, you know, they're, they're kind of held to a higher standard, obviously. Being a, a UFC Hall of Famer now in the, in the fight wing, And I think a lot of people remember you in that cage against Matt Hughes. And obviously talking about not only UFC 45, but also the rematch UFC 52, which is the actual fight that's in the the fight wing. What are your kind of recollections and memories of that? Because me, I, you know, watching it many times and always think of it like, man, that is one hell of a fight literally went from one way where I was thinking it was over one way to being the complete, you know, whatever you call it, 180 and, and going the other way and, Completely changing within an instant,
2: and that—that's pretty much my feeling on it too. Um, I've only seen the fight one time,
1: uh, and that was at the Hall of Fame
2: induction. I've never oh, seen wow. the fight before. I don't i never watched it again. i never—there's no reason to watch it again because it wasn't a fight I had to, I had to go, I had to run back because we would do it again. There was no chance of me ever fighting him a third time, so it just of those things to tuck away and have to not have to look at. And then just went back after it and and kept, you know, did, did you know, continued whatever and fought a couple more times, and then and that was that was it for my career. So, for me, it, it's exactly what you just said. I was winning. I thought the fight was over. I kind of stopped hitting him as hard as I could have because I thought the fight was done, and Matt wakes up and comes back, and, and, and the guy that he is, he comes back up, he fights, he wins the fight. That, that's exactly how it went. I've never, I've never really watched it more than that one time backstage waiting for the induction as think was Pat Miltich was out there getting ready to make the announcement for Matt and I to
1: walk out, and that was the first time I actually saw it. That is crazy. I guess no reason to really want to go back and watch it either, right? Yeah, there's not. I mean, what what for?
2: I, I know what the result is. I know what happens. I know I was winning. I know I thought I had him knocked out. I know I thought the fight was over, and I know I lost. But like, there's no real reason for me to go watch it. There's no learning experience I can learn from that mm-hmm. fight. There's nothing I'm going to take away from that for future reference in my life, or or to make me a you know a better father, a better husband, a better son. Like none of that's going to happen. So it's like there's no real reason for me to go back and watch it. I mean, it's, but it's the same thing with. The Robbie Lawler fight. It's the same thing with the Jason Miller fight. It's the same thing with the uh, uh, the second Dennis Holman fight. I've only seen each of those maybe one time. I never watched them again. I just I just don't. I'm not a guy that goes back and watches all my old fights and kind of and kind of tries to reminisce or relive. I, I don't want to be, you know, uh, 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 Ed Bundy, where I you know I was I scored four touchdowns for Polk High School in high school, and I'm a shoe salesman now and I'm still living being in being in high school. So my whole thing has always been you've got to move forward. I made a mistake. I screwed up. I lost On some of those fights. A couple of those fights, I, you know, I still made mistakes, but I won. And then I still have to move forward. I have to continue on working on myself as a person, you know, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that's just kind of what I do. And that's kind of always been my mindset, always in my athletic career. Like, hey, that's a loss. That's just what that loss is. Just keep moving forward. you got to get better, and you've got to keep moving on. Hey, that's a win. But don't think because you beat that guy that night, he's not coming to try to beat you again later. It's going to happen. If you guys fight again and you guys wrestle again, he might beat you, which has happened to me also in wrestling, where I beat a guy soundly the first time. He beat me soundly the second time. That's just kind of how it goes. So
1: oh, I'm going to want to go on the
2: path I have to look at these fights and kind of keep checking them out again.
1: It's just not my style. It's just not, not my way. I just kind of move on after it. What are your thoughts on being inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame and obviously being put into the fight wing for that fight? See, so, You know, when they
2: made the phone call, um, my wife and I were actually getting ready to move from Las Vegas to Hawaii. Um, I was getting ready to join the Hawaii Five O stunt team, and I got a phone call uh, from Aunt Evans over there. It was like, "Hey, are you going to be in town during the? I think it's July thirteenth weekend. Or uh, forgive me, I forget the exact day. I just know it's July of two thousand fifteen. But the exact day, are you, you going to be in town this week? I was like, Yeah, I kind of be in town. He goes, Oh, good. We're putting you in the Hall of Fame. and need you to be there. I'm like, Okay, cool. I'll come in. And I kind of was like nonchalant about the phone call. And up the phone call, and I actually had to text him back. I was like, Did you say I'm in the Hall of Fame? Like, I had a Talked to him a couple of minutes after, because it didn't register with me. It was something. It was like yeah, at some point I would be in the Hall of Fame, and then then I've I've you know my relationship with the UFC after I left the UFC has not has not been a good one, um, especially with on Zufa. Uh, it has not been a good one. It's not been you know I'm not one of the loved loved guys. I, they didn't give me a job when I stopped fighting. I didn't get uh uh, uh I didn't get a desk. I didn't get uh, you know every month just to be hanging around. I was a guy that was kind of guy that fought for UFC that that, that didn't really. Um, settle well with the staff or I, I, in the in the upper echelon in the management. I just didn't, I just didn't, I bucked the system too much, and as a result, I I was like I'm never going to be part of the UFC. I'm never going to be in the UFC. It's just not going to happen for me. As far as like being a guest speaker and being there for all the the the, uh, the um, Hall of Fame weekends and the, the what, that the uh, international fight week weekends. Like I'm not going to be a part of that. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And I just and I wasn't in the sport per se other than refereeing outside in the amateur and outside in, in some small pro shows that there was no real mindset of like, oh, hey, you know, and I knew eventually I'd be reffing for the UFC. I knew eventually I'd be reffing for Bellator and the big shows. It was just so far away that when they made the phone call, it just didn't register with me. And you hear me in my in my, uh, my speech at the Hall of Fame, like, this is a dream I dreamed so long ago that I forgot I dreamed it. Like I had no, I, I totally forgot that this is something that I wanted. I thought it was so far out of reach I wasn't going to make it happen. So for me getting back to the Hall of Fame, was a huge moment for me. It was such a big moment. I had a super eloquent, amazingly written out. I worked it like a like a screen. Like, I, like a, for me, it was like a major feature film. Like I worked my lines. I had three pages of dialogue I had worked out, and I walked up there and I blanked as soon as I got on that stage. I completely lost everything. And that's not what I do. When I when I work on something, I memorize it. I know exactly what I'm gonna do. I know what a pause for. I know what a pause for 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 applause. I know what to pause for effect. I know how to. It was, I had the whole thing worked out and I got on that stage and I completely lost it. Had no idea what was going on. I couldn't remember anything I was going to say. I mean, it was really, really like super surreal for me to actually be up there. Like, wow, I'm really being inducted into the hall of fame. It was one of the, one of the most, one of the proudest moments, honestly, of my, of my life to this point was being inducted into the UFC hall of fame.
1: Such a cool honor. And when you go back and you you watch fights as, as a fan, that's one of the fights I just love going back and watching. I mean, there's a couple of them, obviously, you know, they've been inducted the Hall of Fame as well, but you love a certain uh, fights and you just like going back and and, and and rewatching it and kind of relieving it as a fan. Obviously, it's a whole different ballgame for a fighter. Like you said, you've you got to keep looking forward and moving forward.
2: Well, that's just my style. I know a lot of guys that, that go back. Even today, I talked to some of the fighters today, because I see a lot of the, the same guys. You know, I see guys all the time. I live in Southern California now, and I see a lot of these guys, in Southern California, because I'm either, I'm either refing them or I'm cornering them, and they're like, hey man, I went back and rewatched my fight, and I got mad at you because you stopped it early, but I rewatched it, and I'm watching it again. I'm alert for that mistake, and then you stopped it at the right time. I screwed up. You're the fighter telling me, hey, I screwed up. Thank you very much for stopping the fight, when you stopped it. I'm looking for that mistake. I keep rewatching it. There's a lot of guys that will rewatch their fights. They will go back and relook at them. That's just their style and their way of doing it. It's just not my style. It never was. And maybe I might have been a better fight if I did it. You know, I don't know.
1: It's just something I didn't do. As a referee, do you ever go back and watch if somebody's saying, hey, you know, you know you're know, you going to pick it apart and say, hey, you know, that was a bad stoppage, or hey, should have done this, should have done that, like a John McCarthy message or something. Do you go back and want to watch it, or you're kind of just taking the notes and kind of just moving forward, so to speak, as far as you're reffing, too? So knock on wood, I've never had a bad stoppage. I've never had
2: a late stoppage. I've never had anybody get hurt in any one of my fights, and I'm I'm up around 800 fights now. Um mm-hmm. And I've been really lucky. It's going to happen. We're human. It's going to happen. Everyone, is ha- everyone has a bad night. Everybody screws up. Everybody has a problem. Everybody, everybody, every single referee will make a mistake, period. I have made plenty of mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I have made a crap ton of mistakes. These have been very minor. I've never made any big ones. But I do go back when I get when I get scolded, and I, and I have been scolded quite a bit um, um, by, by, by John McCarthy, by Annie Foster. I have been scolded where I am like, okay, I need to go back and relook at this. And I have gone back and looked at it. But part of the problem is the focus when you're looking at a fight is not on the referee. It's on the fighters. So a lot of the times what I'm screwing up on, I can't see on camera because I'm not in-camera angle. It's not what's been filmed and been sent to the house. And so when I get home and I look at it on my DVR, I look at it online, I can't see what I did wrong because it's not, I'm not in camera. What's in camera is what the fighters are doing. And so it's one of those situations where you're like, okay, I've got to be real cautious. Okay, you know, it's like, okay. So, like, a lot of times it is taking notes. But other w- bigger ones, and, and I do, and I will say this, this is uh, for those fans out there that have taken big John McCarthy's course, he's actually coming up in July, if you want to be a referee or a judge, uh, most commissions now are, are demanding that you pass um, somebody's major refereeing course. Uh, of course, the two that I, I endorse are, are Herb Dean's and John McCarthy's. In John's course, at his course, he specifically shows different fights throughout the entire uh, weekend that you're there learning. And he, he show you these, these different things that went wrong, or these different things that went right. And they make, he makes it very confusing for the judging, like, how would you score this? How would you score that? It's very hard to judge and score because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you think. But because of that, I'm able to go look at other fights. Like, okay, I heard about this one fight that happened in Russia. I heard about this one fight that happened in Poland. I heard about this fight that happened down in Brazil. And, and these organizations you're not sure about and I'm able to get access to that. And I will watch other referees when they make mistakes. I will watch other referees when they have great fights and great matches. I'm like, oh, wow, that was really tough. And there, there, are, there are fights. As a fan you'll watch, I'm like, wow, that, that fight went pretty well. Things went great. And, you know, things went the way they went. The, winner, the, the, the guy that won is the guy that should have won, and that was the end of it. Nothing really happened. And there's and – there's, but those fights sometimes are very difficult to ref. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of, oh, was that, is that close? You know, Where would that inside leg kick go? Where did, that, where did that hand go when it, when, it, when it touches upper torso? Was he down? Was he not down? Was he a down opponent? Was he an upper opponent? A, like, from a refereeing standpoint, a lot of these fights are very difficult to ref. And I go back and watch that and say, okay, I want to see what that ref did. I want to go see what, what Mark Goddard did in this, in this fight because it was a very difficult fight to ref, but he did a great job. Let me see what he did. And we do a lot of that, too. We look at each other and critique each other and kind of pay attention to it. We'll, get, we'll all text each, each other on these, we have these big, long, I'm texting chains between each other. Hey, check out this fight that, that so-and-so just did. It was a great job. Hey, check out this fight that so-and-so did. This is an amazing job in a really, really bad situation. are like, okay, and, and this is kind of, you know, and this is what we learn from, and you learn from these things that go on. And, you know, like, like, what happens when the lights go out? In the arena, so there's a power failure, and the lights go out. What do you do? You know, it's like as a referee, you have to have that protocol set in the, set in the backstage, you know? It's like, okay, uh, uh, John Jones, beat a guy in the head that was down on the ground. Why did Herbine take two points away? Because the intent was to hurt a guy down a point. You got to take two points away. You have to, you must take two points away. That's what it is. But people forget that that's how it goes. And the thing is, the refs have to have that mentality right away. So we go back and we watch these fights. Okay, hey, I'm not watching the fight because I want to see who's going to win the fight. I'm going to have to see what the ref did. And we'll look and what he do in that situation and what caused that situation to happen. And that's the kind of things that we do. And so, yeah, I go back and watch a lot of the other, other refs. And I try to watch my own when I can, if I can be seen. But a lot of times, and honestly, one of the biggest honors you get as a referee, you're never seen on camera, and the fighters forget who the ref is. Hey, I had this great fight a couple months ago, man. Do you remember that? Yeah, I was your ref.
0: <laughs> you don't remember <laughs> the internet?
2: you was like, oh, great. I did my job. I was not in the way. I was not in anybody's way. No one saw me on camera. Totally fine. That's the job. We're not part of the show. We're just there for fighter safety. We're not to be part of the show. We're not to be in there, you know, doing hand signals and going crazy when they announce their names and all that stuff. We're there, just to, be, we're there to do a job,
1: which is for fighter safety. We go in, we do our job, we go home. That's it. As far as, let's say, Herb Dean, for instance, on the, the Robbie Lawler or Askren fight, you know, to me as a fan at first, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it looked like, you know, Robert loller might have passed out for a second. Is that something you would message Herb Dean? Not really, you know, you know, buzz balls or anything like that, but say, hey, you know, I, I, I saw it differently or, or, you know, what happened there or what what do you see there? Is that something you might text him about? Okay, so remember, the angle that Herb Dean has is the best angle there is possible. It's
2: better than any camera angle that I will ever see. And most of the times, to be quite honest, if I'm not at a fight, working a flight, I'm at home watching a fight or I'm at a bar watching a fight, While drinking, while talking, this is what's going on. I'm not fully paying attention. So you never go, hey, I saw it a different way. You never text the guy and go, hey, I saw it a different way. I don't care who the referee is. You go, hey, I saw it a different way. What the hell are you doing there? It's always a situation of, hey, what did you see? I missed it. I missed it. I missed what you saw. Show me what you saw. And then they tell you, and they tell you. A good referee, everybody knows, they can tell you exactly what they saw. They tell you exactly why they did it and exactly what happened. Okay, I'm fully in agreement with that. I'm good with it. And, and that's, that's kind of how these situations go. And, and the thing is, is that, like, I don't think Herb made, that, made, made a bad decision during that fight when he had to make that, made that particular decision with that minimal amount of time left, trying to make, the, you know, remember, we have to make a decision within one one hundredth of a second. We have to make a decision as a referee. And you've got to make it for fighter safety. It's all about fighter safety. Nothing to do with winners and losers and, and anything else anybody wants to say. It's ultimately fighter safety. In that position, Robbie's hand dropped. He grabbed it. He didn't move it. He had to stop the fight. Totally understand why he stopped it. I get it, and I totally, I totally agree with what he did in that, in that situation. Would I, would I have handled it differently? No clue. Was not in there. I have no idea. Was not in there. I will tell you, my ego wants to tell you, yeah, I do it, you know, whatever, blah, blah, and it'd be 100 times better because I'm that kind of guy. That is a complete lie. You have no clue until you are actually in there in that particular situation what was going on. I have never had that situation one of my fights. I've never had anybody bulldog choke anybody in one of my fights. I've never been in that situation in any one of my fights. Herb has before in the past, and he has again. He's the only one that I can talk to that can testify to what actually goes on. In there. So I have no idea what I would do in that. I have no clue. I think I know, but I don't know. You don't know. Everyone, thinks, everyone has these scenarios in their heads. are like, oh, in this situation, I would immediately do this. You're like, dude, you don't know until you're actually in there. You hope you make the right decision. The one thing about a referee you have to have is thick skin because it is a thankless job. The only time, the only time anybody says anything bad or says anything about a referee is when it's bad. They never say anything good about a referee. When was the last time you heard somebody say, oh, that was, that, that was a great stoppage, that was a great thing, getting a great job, getting a great job doing that? No one says that. It's only if you are in there a half a second too late or a half a second too early. That's the only time anybody says anything about a referee is it's always negative. So you have to have super thick skin as a referee. It's one of the most difficult tasks. And then, like I said earlier, uh, referees, are gonna, everyone's going to have a bad night. Everyone's going to screw up at some point. A human is going to make a mistake. That's what we are. We are humans. We're not machines. We're not computers. We don't analyze it. We don't have super speed, you know, brain systems. We have to pull our things together. We don't have to have a second to make sure it's the right decision.
1: And that comes from practice and repetition. And that's just how it is. I did think that he might have went out for a second because your arm doesn't fall like that when you're fully at full strength. So I definitely, I'm, I was kind of with Herb Dean's decision at first. I was kind of thinking, I was like, man, he, I think he might've went out for a second. Cause his hand just like completely flopped down as if he had no, you know, no bearings. The, the cool thing is, is that the one thing about that fight, the way
2: that that fight went, you can run it back again and no one's going to complain because Robbie was be, was literally beating Askin in every position. He out wrestled him. He out grappled him. He out punched him. He was beating him in every position and then Askin gets a hold of his neck and then the fight's over. So the, the change wasn't like, oh, he battled back, he battled back, he battled back and he got it. It was a quick change. Props to Askin. He's super strong in that position too. Don't don't get me wrong. He's got a great grip and, and great back straight to hold that head in there. So if everybody runs it back, like, you know what? Let's run it back and see what happens again. Not a problem. Doesn't matter. Everyone's going to be happy, super excited from a fan standpoint. And, and, and the UFC, we got a lot of buys on it because people want to watch it.
1: There's uh, no doubt about that. I did also want to mention about your MMA career. You know, obviously UFC was a, was a big part of it. You mentioned the Hall of Fame and the Hughes fights and things like that. But I wanted to mention Pride and, and kind of, you know, your role. Actually, you, you were there in kind of different aspects of Pride. But I don't think a lot of fans realize Pride was the number one MMA organization in the world, not UFC for a while. And I think that that kind of uh, goes forgotten by the American fans because, obviously, Pride was huge in Japan. But what was your time like over there in Pride Fighting Championships? I'm, I'm back with them again.
2: <laughs> I, I do all the commentating for Ryzen, which is basically Pride 2.0. It's the same group uh, 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 of administrators and managers and, and owners that ran Pride are now, running, are now running Ryzen. So I'm back with them again. It's, it's actually pretty cool. But you're amazing not where it used to be. It's not. And you're right. Pride was the biggest organization for MMA in the entire world. Everybody was over there in their primes, in their bases. It was incredible to watch a lot of these fights. For me, it was great. It was a lot of fun. I love I Japan. I love Japan. I love the entire culture. I loved, of course, you don't like me as much because I have a lot of tattoos. So I have to be careful hmm. where, what I wear and where I'm at and what I'm doing. So my wife and I both have arm tattoos and we have back tattoos and we have leg tattoos. So we have to be very cautious about what we wear when we go over there to work. Because it does offend a lot of people because culturally they just don't like tattoos, it's what it is. If pride didn't get into tax trouble way back in the day, they wouldn't have ever sold and they would have been it would have been a rival. Now would they have been able to battle against the, the juggernaut that is a UFC today? I I don't I don't know. We, we will never find out. We'll never know. They got in tax trouble, they had to sell, they had to find a way to get out from underneath it, they sold it, and this is where we're at. It was incredible, especially on on uh, excuse this Pride thirty three. Forgive me, I get my I get my Pride numbers wrong. I went out did the opening montage went back changed my fight gear went out and fought uh, uh musashi won yep. the fight come back out put my suit take a shower put my suit back on go back to the, to the announcing table and i announced the rest of my life and that's the first time it's ever happened in any sport anywhere uh where somebody that fights on the main card is also commentating the main card and i, I did it first and that's the one thing i can say and, and pride what you know gave me that opportunity mr saki gave me that opportunity to make that happen and that, that's what it is and and he, he because of that because of the way I did and how hard I worked is the reason why he wanted to bring me back again uh, for uh, uh, for Ryzen and, and thank goodness that uh, Shingo his his matchmaker and assistant was able to get a knew how to get a hold of me was he able to bring me back in again so it's like it's been a great run to go back in there pride was amazing and it was absolutely so think of Krokop Vanderly Silva um, uh, the Nogueira brothers Bob Sapp uh, uh, think any old-time guy, any you know, Don Fry, think any old-time guy in their prime Fader best fighting there. And Fader goes without saying. Like, he was, he, you know, he went whatever. He won, what, 32 in a row or whatever before he started having a little decline there um, as, as he does now, which happens to everybody mm-hmm. as he get older. But these guys were in their prime smashing fools. You know, and I don't, I don't care how good you are. To come in and fight eight tomato cans in a row and make it look, look effort, effortlessly is a difficult task. And that's what Van Lee Silver was doing. He was smashing guys every single time. Nobody was getting close to him. The same guys, you know, and, and of course they have the characters like Crazy Horse Bennett and, and, and a lot of these other cats. But it was a very great time to fight in Japan as a fight in these pride days. And there'd be arenas that, you know, we're talking 40,000, 50,000 fans sitting in these arenas. Like it was huge over there. It was absolutely intense. Many people sit there and watch a fight. When you watch it, 50,000 people come in, you know, and, and, and it was a great time to be in MMA was in when, when Pride was in its prime now. The money, though, is much different now. Like, you're getting a lot more money now in, in the organizations than we were back then. And that's just how the,
1: the economy of, of sport goes. Pride, so much bigger than UFC at this point. I mean, UFC obviously had had legendary guys and big names, but Pride was definitely where it's at. I mean, that was the prime. That was the, the big one, if you will. You know what I mean? Like you were saying, 50,000, 60,000 people selling out, mm-hmm. all those huge names. But you know you mentioned, which is so cool, fighting and announcing, and you're such a great announcer. I feel like that is, is also a bread and butter of yours. Yeah, the reffing obviously is great, but announcing and fighting obviously go kind of hand in hand. But what are your thoughts on, on announcing? Because that seems like it's a big passion of yours as well. You know,
2: it's funny. I, gotta, I also have to thank two people for this one. It's going to sound kind of weird, but I've got to thank my ex-wife, Nikki Amston and, and Ryan Bennett, who's since passed away. But they're the ones that dragged me into announcing. I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with announcing. I thought announcers announcer was stupid. The sport was so young that no one knew what the hell they were talking about and what they were looking at. Like, honestly, if you look at a lot of the old announcers that were back then, and Grogan included, I mean, you know, you, know, you, you keep Grogan in that, in that kind of mindset. Look how much he's improved over the years with the UFC. How, you know, he's an amazing announcer. He's an amazing announcer for a decade. Look how he was in the very beginning. Everyone has changed. Everyone has developed. Everyone has grown. And I thought back then, you know, with my ego, of course, still competing, I was like, they don't know sure what the hell they're talking about. They have no idea what they're looking at. They don't, they don't know anything about the sport. They might practice one thing in the sport, which made Rogan so much better than everybody else. He had a black belt in Taekwondo. was working on his black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. So he was different than anybody else was announcing. So he actually was heads and shoulders ahead of everybody else back then. And look how much he's grown throughout the years doing this thing. Everybody else had like one sport. They might've been in karate or they might've been a boxing, but that was it. No one had any idea what the ground game, very few wrestlers in the mix at all. And it was kind of like, you guys know what you're talking about. And, these, and those two people kind of dragged me into announcing, maybe make me get into it. And I got into it and I was horrible when I started. Like, let's not, let's not mix it, man. I was pathetic when I first started uh, my, my announcing, but over time, um, knowledge obviously is a big key. Uh, slowing down, I'm very hyperactive, and I have, a, I have a pretty big speech impediment when I get excited, so me having to slow down uh, my speech, and I'm getting my words out very succinctly, and, and not being long-winded, like, all of that took a long time to kind of process, and now I'm kind of in a space where, you know, I love announcing, man, it, it, it's, it's incredible, I, you know, I had the honor this last New Year's working for Verizon. I, I was the English broadcaster, it was me and Joe Ferraro, and we were the English broadcasting team calling the Floyd Mayweather versus Tenson Nakamura fight, and that was a huge deal for me. I'm calling a Floyd Mayweather fight. This is a guy I used to hang out with at clubs in Las Vegas. This is an athlete that I looked up to as, as I'm competing. Obviously, now I'm calling one of his fights. That is a huge deal for me, and it was absolutely amazing to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I have a huge passion for announcing. And it's like one of those things, like, like a lot of other things in my life that I find a passion for, I don't realize it until somebody hits me in the head with it. i like, hey, by the way, what about this thing? You're like, oh, wow, yeah, I really do love this thing. Let me kind of play it a little bit. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've been, I've been down a rabbit hole with this thing for six months. Like, I, I must I must really like this thing, you know, and that's just kind of how it goes in my life.
1: I love it, dude. Definitely natural, and it's so great. You mentioned Mayweather versus Tension. Were you shocked that that was kind of – I know it's an exhibition, but were you shocked that Mayweather kind of disposed of him that quickly?
2: No, not at all. Um, Mayweather doesn't get paid by the round. He gets paid by the fight. So he goes out there and gets done. He wants to get done as quickly as possible. We're talking about a 20-year-old amazing phenom kickboxer in Japan. He's a kickboxer. They don't have the same hand speed, the same hand accuracy. as a guy that's 50-0 in boxing. It just isn't there. This guy is a guy that he has dedicated his life to one aspect of the sport, boxing. That is it. You add kicks to it, tension breaks his arms, breaks his legs, takes him down, easily beats him in the first round. Add takedowns into it. Horoguchi beats Mayweather with takedowns and submissions. He cracks him up. He beats the crap out of him. It's not even a competition. Mayweather in boxing is unstoppable. Within his weight class, obviously, you put Klitschko versus Mayweather. Klitschko wins. He's a bigger, longer guy. He's a heavyweight. And we're talking about a, you know, a, a, a smaller guy in Mayweather. These are the things that, but if Mayweather is very smart, he's very good. I knew that fight was going to go the way that fight was going to go. He was not going to mess around. He's not going to play games with him. But I will say this whenever Mayweather shows up to fight, he takes his shirt off. When, he, when you finally see him with his shirt off, he's either getting ready to uh, start the fight. I'm like, wow, this guy put his time in. He's in shape. He's lean. He looks good. When he took his shirt off, I was like, wow, he, like he didn't look like he even trained for this. Like, like he was kind of, hmm. kind of puffy. I'm like, he didn't look like he trained for this. And then I saw him kind of stalk out there and throw his first jab. I'm like, okay. And then I saw tensing him with that first left. And Miller was like, wow, that was his hardest left, and that's all he's got. It like it didn't even register with him so much. He's like, okay, I just started screwing around now. And then he went out there and smacked him. And he hit him. And those weren't, Mayweather's full of punches. Mayweather didn't turn everything over solidly. He just wanted to hit the kid hard enough to let him know he's in danger and it drop him. That's how tough Mayweather is. Mayweather is that good. And I knew that fight was going to go that fight. And anybody that says otherwise, like, oh, Tenson had a shot or I look like a worker and this other crap, you guys are idiots. You are compl- I'm telling you, you are idiots. There's no way that fight was going to go any other way. There's no way on any given day that Tenson had a shot to beat Mayweather. It just wasn't going to happen. He just doesn't have the technical skill to get a guy like that on his feet with boxing rules, he just doesn't. At kickboxing rules, he wins hands down every single time. You know, make it MMA rules, he has the better shot. There's no way he wins in, in a kick in a boxing fight against a guy like Mayweather. He just doesn't do it.
1: Those conspiracy theories were crazy. That saying it was it was oh a work, god. you know, typical Japan. I was like, I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? You guys
2: are so stupid. It's funny, like it's dumb. Like I I had to stop talking to some of my friends for a while. <laughs> no, man, it's The but I'm like, no, stop, shut up. Like, I'm not talking to you for a while, you idiot.
1: We can't talk anymore. You know, what was great about that, uh, that whole night, Mayweather, obviously, the fans were not happy because tension's their boy, and obviously they wanted their own Japanese guy to win, but Horiguchi beating Caldwell, that was a shocker. That was great for those fans. I mean, they went nuts. You guys went nuts. Dude, that one was a shocker, man. I got to be honest with you, man. Caldwell
2: is a freaking beast. <laughs> He is a beast. I could not believe how well Horiguchi beat him that night. It was incredible to watch. I was glad to be a part of it, man. That was, that was incredible for me. That was the fight that was actually more interesting than anything else because that fight was going to be super close. It was going to be tough, but I had to, and I wanted to see Caldwell kind of wear down uh, Horiguchi, kind of get on him a little bit, make him tired, kind of lean on him a little bit, make him feel his weight and feel his power, and then be like, okay, now Horgushi's going to slow down. He's getting kind of beat up by the bigger guy. You know, he's, he's a longer guy. It's going to be very interesting. And Horiguchi didn't have any of that. He didn't want. To, he didn't want to hear anything that I was saying. Nothing at all. Horiguchi was like, "Nope, this is my fight. I'm going to fight this fight the way I want to fight this fight." And that's how it's going to go. And he went and he did it, and it was incredible. It's it's amazing to watch that fight go the way the fight went. Man, it was really a lot
1: of fun. That was awesome. Can't wait for the rematch. But you know, as we move into the the different realm of you. I mean, we talked about reffing, obviously fighting career announcing. I did want to touch on this. You had a brief pro wrestling career, which is very fascinating to me and very interesting. TNA wrestling, obviously Dixie Carter and TNA bring you in and you're kind of transitioning from MMA to pro wrestling, but you're doing some announcing. How did that all come about?
2: So, So, so in my gym, Uh, in El Segundo, California, called the Raw Training Center. There was also the the Ultimate professional wrestling, UPW. Their school was uh, uh, two nights a week was in our gym, and we had a hybrid ring where we had a boxing ring, but then it also had um, a spring underneath for for pro wrestling. And so John Cena, um, I knew him when he was just a prototype uh, back in the day. Uh, Samoa Joe was coming through there as well with Rick Bassman at UPW. And Samoa Joe remembered uh, that I was doing some commentating, and he remembered me from the gym. And when they were doing a, a match between uh, Samoa Joe and Kurt Angle, um, they reached out to bring me in. And then when I got there, all of a sudden they realized I looked a lot like Kurt Angle. When I, my head was staying my face was Jay. all of a sudden I was like, hey, you look a lot like Kurt Angle. They started working this other gimmick where all of a sudden I'm Kurt's little mini-me. And I'm following him around and kind of attached to him. And it became a good run uh, on there. And, and unfortunately, um, I think there's some miscommunication between my management and – uh, the management over at uh, with Dixie Carter and for some reason I, it, something happened. Well, all of a sudden I was on I was on the pay-per-view every month. I was doing a couple of house shows. I was working on my on my wrestling. I had, rest, I had wrestled AJ Styles up in Canada um, and all of a sudden I got sent home. And It was like a weird thing. I was like, oh yeah, I had like on my schedule, I had three more appearances that week and then all of a sudden they sent me home and then all of a sudden I just never, just never got a call back to them. Just didn't get a call anymore. And I was like, this is just Nuts. Like I don't understand what happened, and I couldn't get – and the way that things work kind of in pro wrestling, like once you're out, you're kind of out, no, no, everyone just stops responding to you. So they just stopped responding to me, and I didn't know what to do anymore, so I was just kind of out of it, and that was the end of it. It, just, it literally just ended, and I had no idea why. I don't really understand why, and I have no clue. It just, just, was just over. But in hindsight, it ended up actually being pretty good because if I had done that, I don't have the size to, to be a rock or to be a, a, a John Cena. Like I, I just don't have the size. So as a result, I've would have spent all this time in, in pro wrestling. had been a small, small like Rey Mysterio size, five ten, and I've been walking around at two hundred, trying to sell it. That it would have been, it wouldn't have been until now that these uh, that these guys are starting to get known. And you saw what happened. TNA went through that little rough patch where they lost everybody because they spent too much money on like Sting and, and Hulk Hogan and those guys, and and uh, and Steve Nash, and got rid of all those guys, and then. You know, all of a sudden AJ gets styles his cut. He's over in Japan wrestling for a while, and now he's you know he's at the WWE and he's doing great. It's like, and that I would have been part of that group, but but light years behind them, trying to battle, trying to fight for space without any protection. So it would have been kind of difficult for me. It ended up working out for me in the end, but I still have a lot of respect. I mean, I don't I don't care if you if you uh, and I hope I'm not pulling the curtain back for too many people, but pro wrestling is fake and the, the, it's a predetermined outcome. So you know what's going to happen, a predetermined outcome. But my gosh, I'm telling you to get to that outcome to get to that final move, to get to that finisher, to get there, everything else you've got to figure out backstage. And these guys are bringing it every single night for your fans at home. And they are, and it is a live stunt show. So when people talk about Ronda Rousey being in WWE and, and, you know, it's kind of crap and whatever, blah, blah, you're like, dude, she has to bring it every single night, every night she has to bring it. And she's getting hit and you're getting bumps and you're taking licks and you're getting cracked on the ground. And you gotta go do it again tomorrow at a house show. You gotta do it again on a TV show. Oh, back on pay-per-view. Here we go again. It's like, it's crazy. The schedule is grueling, it's tedious, it's hard. Um, uh, Dean Ambrose uh, used to live in Vegas way back in the day. And when he was in his hi- heyday in WWE, my wife was a yoga instructor, and she used to instruct him. He used to go, he used to, go to her yoga class when he, in, when he was in Vegas. He would be in town one day. He'd come in, for, he'd come in and, uh, unpack a suitcase, repack a suitcase, do some laundry, do a, uh, some hot yoga, get a massage, and fly back out again. And that was just, that's just what he did because that was the schedule he was on. And I would talk to him, and he's like, He'd be like, dude, I took somebody missed time a you know somebody missed time a uh, pile driver. Somebody missed time a drop kick. Somebody came off the rope too high. Somebody, somebody clotheslined me, came too high and catching my chest. You know, I'm like, what the hell? He's like, dude, I know I'm bruised, I'm beat up, I'm hurt, and I got to go back and do it again tomorrow. <laughs> That's just what it is, man. It's just crazy. So my time at TNA, I am so so happy that I had that opportunity to do that. So glad I was able to get a pro wrestling match in with, uh, with AJ. And then uh, uh, it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't going to work out. Whatever, whatever you want to say, the universe didn't like it, the Dallas didn't like it. It just wasn't for me. i moved on to other stuff.
1: You ever look at some of the pro wrestlers that go with MMA and think like, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty great that these guys can go over, because I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but Ken Shamrock originally is a pro wrestler, not an MMA fighter. He was a pro wrestler who went to MMA world. Severin is a pro wrestler that went into MMA. Obviously, Brock Lesnar, most famously. And maybe the best one of all, Sakuraba, was a pro wrestler that went to MMA. Are you surprised at the success that a pro wrestler can have in MMA? Well, you have to look at these guys' backgrounds as a whole. I mean, looking at Lesnar, I mean he's a national
2: champion in, in wrestling, and they went on became a pro wrestler. And, and of course, he's always had that kind of. If you look at his style of pro wrestling, it's very it's a very strong style of pro wrestling. He's very he's very gruff about everything he does. He's very contact oriented. He's very strong and, and makes it you know makes it super crazy how he does his stuff. So him making a jump in MMA it makes sense. But of course, the one time he found a guy that could outbox him, he gets beat, and that, that's kind of how. It goes. You have to be careful. And then when he found a guy that had, had better submission than him, the first time he got beat, he was able to beat Frank Miller back. So I'm not surprised, because Brock Lesnar is a hard-ass worker. He's been a hard-ass worker since he was in high, in high school, and he has wrestling as a background. Ken Shamrock, the same thing. And the same thing with Dan Severn. Back in the day, there, wasn't, there was no MMA. I mean, there wasn't MMA from the beat they started MMA. They, they were brought in at the very beginning of MMA. So before that, they were pro wrestling. That's how they made their money. So that, that's why they jumped from... If there had ever been MMA that far back, I think those two guys would have started in MMA. They went to pro wrestling after. Ken Shamrock, of course, went back to pro wrestling um, after that, and back and forth. And no, it does not surprise me because a lot of these guys, it's your skill and talent. You really have to think about what you're doing and how you hone these skills. A lot of these guys come from a wrestling background, like an amateur wrestling background, an amateur boxing background, have rolled, done jitsu um, Uh, Jeez, forgive me Um, He's married to one of the Bellas He was out, Brian Daniels Brian Daniels and I have a black belt From the same instructor, Neil Melanson We're both black belts and catch wrestling from Neil Melanson Brian Daniels knows how to Catch wrestle, he legitimately can make an MMA Legitimately can make an MMA No doubt about it, I rolled with him He is strong as all balls This guy is strong as hell and knows the game He understands what's going on I would not be surprised if he made a jump across Of course, he got hurt, was out of pro wrestling for a while Had to change his diet and change his body mechanics. to get himself back in. He's back into pro wrestling, but no, it doesn't surprise me of the guys that jump over. Now, other guys that want to jump over to, to become, become better at, at, uh, at, uh, uh, to kind of up their game and up their, their, their credit, so to speak in the pro wrestling world to make that jump over. Yeah. They tried to, and they, they fail miserably. I mean, Dave Bautista fought in MMA. I was trying to actually try to get on his card. Uh, his last, he had a card he's putting together in the floor and I was trying to get on it to be one of the fighters. So he went for pro wrestling, he went and fought, and now, he's, now look, he's freaking Dave Bautista. We see him everywhere. I mean, you know, he, he had that in 00, 007. He's the bad guy, and all of a sudden now he's the guy on, uh, on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like it's incredible to watch what he did. But because you look at Dave's career, he's been a hard worker since the beginning. It's all, these, all these guys have the same thing. Nothing is given to them. Everything is earned, and a lot of it's taken. And they go in there, I've got to take it. I'm not going to just sit there and write. Ride. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, beefy the Rock didn't walk in there and, and, oh, I have this big eyebrow lift, so I'm going to show up and I'm going to lift weights. and I'm just going to lift my eyebrow up and, and say, what The Rock is cooking, and that's going to make me millions and millions of dollars. That man's an athlete. That fool knows how to work. He works hard. He still works hard. Uh, I saw him a little bit when he was shooting uh, Jumanji uh, the last Jumanji a while ago. I actually shoot another Jumanji right now when he, was, when he was doing it in Hawaii, and he works hard every day, two hours before he's to be on set. He's in the gym every day. These guys are all hard workers. They all dedicate themselves to the task and to what they're doing. And so, no, it doesn't surprise me when these pro wrestlers make that jump. They're all very dedicated in trying to make themselves better athletes.
1: Now, as we start to wind it down, hit the wind down button. Gotta ask, where the Twinkle Toes? That great nickname you have, one of the greatest nicknames of all time. Where did that actually come from? Man, I hate that nickname. I'm trying to get rid of that thing forever. I have people
2: <laughs> try to put it like for announcing them, like go go to a, do an appearance or whatever, my like, drop the Twinkle Toes.
1: Stupid. I hate
2: it. <laughs> So my manager was over fighting in Japan. Um, I think I, fought, I saw fought in a Shuto match way back in the beginning of my career. And I paint my toenails. And at the time, I had glitter on my toenails as part of the paint job. And my manager asked this Japanese girl who spoke broken English. She was like, you know, he was like, which fighting was your favorite fight? She's oh, I like, the, I like the guy with the bald guy with the tattoos. He's like, well, that's half, the, that's half the guys are fighting. Like, who's your favorite fight? She goes, oh, the one with the twinkly toes. And that stuck. And that was it. And that was a... Uh, uh, um, Lou Ciparelli uh, gave me that nickname It stuck, they promoted it at the same time At the exact same time um, What was Henderson? Hollywood They got Hollywood Henderson at the same time And mm-hmm. Natural uh, for Couture And Trickle Trolls all came out at the same time And he pushed it and kept pushing it And it just stuck, I've been trying to get rid of that thing since the day I got it I hate it, but it's just everyone mentions it And everyone brings it up, you used it in the intro like, yeah. This is what it is, yep. this is, yep. what it is. I can't do anything about it It's a part of it <laughs>
1: This goes perfectly with trick, you know, twinkle-toes trick. It just goes so smooth.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Makes me,
1: oh, I get a little vomit little in the back of my throat every time, just a little bit. <laughs> now, what is your kind of favorite facet of MMA? Obviously, fighting is a huge part, but reffing, and then you're so great at announcing, too. So what's your kind of favorite facet of it?
2: Um, It's it's tough to say. I enjoy each, each facet, but they're, but, they're, but they're different. You know, I don't know. What the, uh, what the deal is. Sorry, I just smacked the wall and dropped something down. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> for that noise. <laughs> my sk- one of my skateboards, we have a bunch of uh, – my wife's a skater, and we have a bunch of really uh, uh, high-dollar skateboards on the wall, and I bumped the wall with my head. <laughs> 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 uh, um, so anyway, so the, 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 it, I like it for different reasons. When I fought, I enjoyed fighting because I was, I'm, I'm, I was doing something, and every fighter is like this. Every single fighter must understand this is what they're doing. I don't, care, I don't care if you're at the amateur level or at the highest level of the pro. I don't care if you're Conor McGregor, John Jones, or you're a guy we've never heard of that, that, that's 0-2 that's as an amateur. You're doing what 95% of the, of the individuals on the planet want to do. They want to fight another individual legally, not get in trouble, and be able to walk away and be like, wow, that was a, that was a good competition. There's 95% of the people on the planet want to do it. Only 5% of the people on the planet can do it, period. That, that's it. There's only 5% of the people on the planet that can actually fight and do it well. Okay, or, or Just do it. Just do it. Just be able to get inside that, that cage or ring and be able to do it on a fight night. Only 2% of the population does it well. Only 1% does it great. That's just what it is. That's just how it is. So when I was fighting, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm part of that elite group. I'm part of that elite crew. I'm, I'm very happy with what I did. I'm very happy in that, in that mindset of how that worked, but that part of the career is just done. Now, commentating I enjoy because I'm able to explain to people at home. And my style of commentating, obviously, has changed over the years, but now it's very much – me thinking about my best friend, uh, Greg, or my best friend, Willard, sitting at home, we're on my couch, we each got a beer in our hand, we're watching TV, it's just the two of us, and the, the sound is down, and they want me to explain to them what's going on. And that's, that's how I think about it, so that's my commentating style. I'm just trying to explain, hey, this is what's going on at home, folk, ladies and gentlemen. It's very relaxed, it's very casual, and I'm just trying to be very informative. So I love it because I'm able to, to educate people on actually what's really going on, but not from somebody who's seen a 1,000 matches or 10,000 matches, which I've seen 10,000 matches as well, N- and not from a guy that's refed 800-plus matches, not, not from that guy, or from the guy that's been in the ring, uh, uh, you know, whatever, how many times I've fought, I don't mean, know, 30-plus times or whatever, in, in that actual ring, or recording guys another 100 times. It's not, it's not that guy Go look, I, I, know, I know what the sport is going on because I've done all those things, not because I've done just one of those things. I've done all those things. So I'm able to educate people, in my personal opinion, better than anybody else, better than anybody else that's out there. I have a better education system because I understand what's going on and what's happening inside there. I know where guys are going before they're getting there because I know how the fight progresses. I know the fight is going to go, and I also know what the guy is doing. I also know what his, what his mentality is and the mindset, and what's happened previous. I'm able to add together the things that have happened, you know, in, in accumulation, we're now in the fourth round of a championship fight. We've seen how this fight has gone. It's very, very close. But I can tell you how the fight's going to start to go because I've been in that situation. I've seen that situation. I've watched that situation. I've repped that situation. I know what's going on. And so that's why my, my, I have a big passion for, for uh, commentating. And the refereeing is because it, it's, it's very fight safety oriented. I'm in there to do one specific sort of job. I'm not being part of the show. I'm not supposed to be seen by anybody. I'm just in there for fight or safety. And hopefully I don't have to do anything at all except fight. That's all I want to do. And so I, I, when you ask me, which one is my favorite, I can't give you a favorite because each one is a, is a different portion of, of my day. It's a different set of what I'm doing, but I do have to put myself in the mode. When we go to Japan um, to commentate, I get on a plane and I fly and I land and we get out and I have meetings and I do interviews. And, and so I have a different mentality when I'm getting ready to get ready to commentate. When I referee, even if I have to get on a plane, it's a different kind of mentality. I show up, you know, hour before, hour before the fight starts, uh, I go in, I do a pre-fight, and it's a different protocol. It's a different set of mechanics I have getting prepped before the show starts. It's a lot different than what people think. So, to me, it's, I, I love all three. I love all three. I love that I fought, I love that I commentate, and I love that I rest.
1: Now, looking back, obviously, your MMA career as far as fighting was great. 21-9, and 9, pretty great record, world champion, welterweight world champion, middleweight, been in every organization pride which is top of the food chain obviously ufc you were in strike force sengoku which is an underrated uh, promotion rumble the rock I mean, you've been pretty much everywhere you've done everything you had such a great career what do you think when the fans look back at your career what are they going to say obviously you know announcing fighting refereeing but what are the fans going to say what's the lasting legacy of frank Trigg in mma uh he's doing it
2: all he's still contributing to the sport he's still giving back to the sport he's not he's fighting the sport i'm not just out there taking taking people's money and and running off and 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 doing stupid stuff in the public eye and and things like that i am still in the sport trying to get back i'm trying to give the next generation of guys and and fighters a better leg up you know and when we were fighting there was no social media there wasn't we had eight fights a year the ufc threw eight fights a year and you had to talk a big game uh, on, on the forums and underground forums and on the SureDog forums they got to try to get a fight. That's all you could do. Right? And now there's so much more social media so much more things and I'm hoping that, that people look back at my careers and, and go, you know, and, and then of course you know, I'm still, relatively speaking, I'm still new at this roughing thing, so it's still a little, you know, I'm still new at the roughing thing, so I have a long time to go before I'm done with that. I'm still new at the commentating game, so I have a long time to go, before, you know, before I'm done with that. But when I'm done with it, hopefully, look back to go, wow, it's the guy that gave that gave him into the sport. like the sport brought him in, gave him gave him a little bit of fame. He used that fame to catapult him into, into acting, the stunt work, and he used that also to come back and get more to the sport by refereeing and
1: commentating on it. And think about this: basically three decades. In MMA, so you you, know, you started in the late 90s, going to the 2000s, and now we're in the 2010s. so three decades in, in yeah. the MMA business—pretty crazy. When you started out, did you ever think, wow, like, wow, you know, MMA is even going to be around? Uh, you know, three decades later.
2: No, it was tough, man. Because remember, when I got into the sport, it was banned in 48 sports in 48 states. It was 48 states. Dana White dragged the sport on his back to get it legalized in in all the states. That's what he did. He did that. Nobody else did that. Everybody else can say whatever they want, whatever they want to pat them on the back. It was Dana White. He went out on the media tour. He dragged it across. He changed the rules with the uh, uh, with the help of John McCarthy setting rules and weight classes and making these things work. in um, the ABC Council, Dana was able to go around and drag it and make this thing legal in in, in all fifty states and now now in the world. And that's what happened. So it's it's been it's been a great ride. I did not think that the I did not think that MMA was going to be around. I didn't think we was going to be legalized most of the places to be able to do it. It's been a great ride. I've really been happy with how things are. I've really been happy with how things have gone with, with MMA and it's exploding. It's exploding. Every day there's something new. I mean, look how many Bellator cars there are now. You look how many how many Combat America cars there are now. Look at look at all these fights are now happening overseas. Um, there, there's rumors of other organizations coming back. Uh, M1 one's starting to do more in the US. And then you got, you have Ryzen is now throwing you know, they, they did six fights uh, the last two years, they're trying to do eight fights this year. I mean, it's, it's things are changing, things are growing. There's more money, there's more people paying attention to it. It's still growing. It's amazing that what is happening in MMA
1: right now. It is awesome that MMA is all over globally, like you said, just kicking by taking names, really becoming a global sport and really blowing up. Now, Frank, please let us know where the fans can kind of uh, greet you, meet you, whatever as far as your social media plugs?
2: So social media, it's all uh, Frank Trigg. It's all one word, two Gs.
1: It's very simple. They're all
2: me. Um, uh, if you you might bounce the one that, that, that doesn't look like me. It's probably my son or my father. We all have the same <laughs> name, so it's kind of like me. But you can tell by the photos, like, okay, this is who it is. Um, uh, the uh, uh, But, yeah, so, so if you want to uh, – my main ones I stay on are, are Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are the three big ones I use. Um, I don't really, uh, I do a little bit on cameo. Um, if anybody wants to hit me up on cameo, um, I can give you a personal message, but I try to, um, I try to stick with those three big ones and then the cameo ones when they come up, because it's just easier for me, uh, to keep track of everything. Cause I'm so busy. I'm always walking around and doing so many different things, but yeah, that's my main gig is just, uh, just those three. And, and honestly, you know, the best way to catch me is to be in a fight is to be at a fight. You'll catch me walking around. I'll be the bald guy in all black. <laughs>
1: you uh, so much for all the time you gave us and it's a shame that you hate that Twinkle Toes nickname because I do love it but thank you <laughs> so much for uh, coming on with us.
0: tonight. No I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.